Welcome back to the Brew Theology Podcast. This is episode 121. Tonight we are with Dr. Doug Allen, professor over at DU. If you don't know what DU is, that is the University of Denver, otherwise known as DU. And Mark is with us tonight. Mark, good to have Hello. you. Thank you. And by the way, uh, this is a little, uh, little spoiler alert. Mark's going to be back with us in a couple of months talking about Gnosticism. Sweet. So be on the lookout for that Very podcast. Cool. Can't wait. We have a few announcements before we get going tonight. Uh, first off is, if you like what we do, if you just enjoy these episodes, please do us a favor, do yourself a favor, share it with your friends and your colleagues, go over to iTunes, rate it, review it. I know iTunes is like the big mothership of all podcasts. We are actually with Podbean, so give Podbean some love, but if you want others to find out about us, iTunes really is the way to go, so please go there. Like I said, rate it, review it, share it. We're at Brew Theology on Facebook and Instagram, also at Twitter, Brew underscore Theology. We have a new chapter, by the way. Yeah, we do. This is exciting. Yay, Brian this, and Bridget. This, this is the 11th chapter. It's in Raleigh-Durham, which makes North Carolina and Florida right there next to each other and Atlanta, Georgia. Like We have like the southern northeast. Like uh, cool. It's like the power squad down there. Is Trip you know? going to be joining our Raleigh-Durham group? Trip Fuller, if you're listening to this podcast, you better. You really should. We'd love to have you. You know wonder, that. You always wonder if your friends listen to your podcast and, you know, do we listen to Tripp's podcast? Does he listen to our podcast? We do recommend the Homebrew Christianity. They're on our website. So anyway, yeah, Raleigh Durham's going to be up and running pretty soon. If uh, you want to start a chapter, go to brewtheology.org. There's all the instructions of what that would look like. And then you'd be in correspondence with Janelle and I, our email, mm -hmm. Ryan or Janelle at brewtheology.org. So um, yeah, you guys ready to rock and roll? Ready to brew? Ready. Looking forward to we it. We have an event, don't we? We do have an event. Because I have a pre-event to announce, too. So do your pre-event, and then we'll get to the event. So um, when I went to Parliament this fall, which you've all heard about too much of, um, I got connected to this great group of leaders here in Denver called the Multi-Faith Leadership Forum. And they are putting on a concert called Unity of the Heart with Yuval Ron on April 9th. Um, in Denver at Most Precious Blood Catholic Church. And so if you would like to come, if you're here in Denver, it features Christian, Jewish, and Muslim music, um, all, all from kind of the spiritualist, um, mystical side of things. And I have heard that he is amazing, and there'll be several events that Yuval Ron will be doing around Denver that week. Um, but this one, Brew Theology, is helping sponsor, so just wanted to invite you. And then a month later... There, so tickets are where? Are at Eventbrite. Eventbrite. And they search for just... Um, Unity of Heart Concert. All right. Very cool. And then a month later... May the 4th. May the 4th be with you at Altruist, where we will be bringing six um, religious leaders from Denver together to talk about how they do social justice work in the world. And then we will give all the donate all of the me out here all of the proceeds sales, donations proceeds, yeah uh, to cause charities yeah. organizations such as urban peak helping out with homeless teens around the city of uh, denver and the urban table which is a, a gardening community that gives away all their produce and the interfaith alliance of colorado which helps out with advocacy uniting the different faiths and religions for the common good in society here in the state of colorado so we're excited about it's that be so cool reverend amanda henderson will be with us Diana Thompson, we're going to have Dilpreet Jammu, Ved Nanda, uh, we're going to have Rabbi Brian Feld, 
And then the last but not least, Ishmael Akbulat. That's right. Mosaic. And he was just with us a few podcasts ago. So we would love to have you. And we're having it, great beer by Seedstock Brewery. If you like um, tradi- traditional beer, Seedstock's one of the best in the city, I think. But join us. May the 4th. You can buy your tickets now. Um, if you're coming in from out of town because you love us that much, um, just let Ryan and I know and we'll make sure we can get you all the places you need to be. Oh, and speaking of, so here's what would be cool. If you're coming in early, come on a Thursday. Yeah. And come hang out with us and our community on Thursday That'd night. That'd be awesome. That might be the night that Mark is speaking. Is that right? Oh, boy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So uh, you can learn about Gnosticism two days before the event. Come hang out at my house, sleep on the couch. It's fine. My family's cool with we that. Got or a Janelle's couple spare place bedrooms. as well. And then, uh, yeah, have a whole weekend with us, which is also Cinco de Mayo weekend. So Denver, Tacos. D- Denver could be pretty crazy that weekend. That's a big weekend. Tequila, margaritas. Yeah. Oh, man. All good. It is. So we do, by the way, encourage people who are drinking to be responsible. And if you don't drink, we don't judge you. Nope. Oh. Nazarenes are welcome. <laughs> we have a coffee and tea logo and a chapter as well. Um, okay, so tonight we're talking about the Baha'i faith, the Baha'i religion, which is a 200-year-old religion, and Doug here grew up Baha'i, so uh, I, before we get going just on the theology behind it and all the nuances there, would love to hear more about your upbringing and uh, just as a childhood growing up in this tradition, and what we normally do around our tables is we say, you know, here's my name, here's my religious pedigree label, and then here's where I am today. So I know that's like a loaded question, but we tr- we try to get that done in a minute, if possible. And okay. you, you can go longer because you're our special guest tonight. <laughs> okay, well, thanks, Ryan. It's good to be here, and uh, I really appreciate the opportunity to uh, uh, meet with your uh, people last week uh, at the uh, Brew Pub uh, meeting. Uh, such a spirit of... Uh, uh, just uh, curiosity and learning, I think, is a, r- a really wonderful thing. So you asked me how I got into the Baha'i faith, and I, I did uh, uh, get raised as a Baha'i, but in the Baha'i faith, we have a, a concept called independent investigation of truth, which which means that uh, we still, as kids, are raised to learn about the many faiths, and in fact, a little bit in the spirit of your uh, gathering, uh, by the time I can even remember I knew about Moses and Muhammad and Jesus Christ and uh, uh, Krishna and Zoroaster and, and of course, the, uh, the founder of the Baha'i faith, Baha'u'llah. And so uh, Baha'i parents will raise their kids exposed to many different faiths, but of course, uh, naturally, you learn about the Baha'i teachings and engage with Baha'i community activities. The, the first Baha'i in my family was my grandmother, and uh, later my grandfather became a Baha'i, as did my dad and my uncles. And uh, uh, so they they moved to Swaziland when I was uh, about the time I was born in the uh, mid 1950s, and so uh, went over and visited them there, and it was really raised with the perspective of really being. A, a global citizen and uh, embracing the concept of the oneness of humankind, which is very much a part of the Baha'i faith. So uh, that's a little bit about myself. I uh, I teach at the University of Denver, uh, International Business and Human Resource Management in the Daniels College of Business, and and uh, there we take ethics very seriously. So it's a easy place for a Baha'i to fit in. Nice, yeah. Uh, and by the way, if you're if you're like in your uh, before college years or you're looking at going to grad school at all. 
Mm-hmm. I'm just going to do a little plug right now because we have so many connections at DU and ILF, both, and you guys do some joint stuff occasionally too. It's a great place, and you're actually living in an amazing neighborhood if you go down there. So check out uh, if you're yeah if you're in Denver, check out a class. Come yeah, come see. Doug. Check out a class. Yeah. We have uh, executive education opportunities if you're already kind of in in business, but a lot of different programs that you can look into, short or long term. Yeah, we do love our city, and we uh, we like to give all kinds of plugs and love where it's we can. It's awesome here. It is. <laughs> so let's let's talk. Let's start talking about just the theology, the God part. And I have some quotes that you gave us here uh, from your your faith traditions, uh, scriptures, and writings. So this quote here is from Baha'u'llah. Is that how you pronounce it? Baha'u'llah. Yes. Baha'u'llah. Uh-huh. Okay, the founder, and he says that there can be no doubt, whatever that the peoples of the world of whatever race or religion derive their inspiration from one heavenly source and are the subjects of one God. So let's, let's talk about that God in the, you know, the Jewish tradition, you have Adonai Hashem, uh, you have Allah and uh, within the Muslim tradition, the, the Christian theology can get a little bit tricky with the Trinitarian gymnastics, but there's also that monotheistic God there. So who and what is God in the Baha'i tradition? That is the most loaded question. Cause if somebody asked me that as a Christian, I would say, well, I mean, Oh, where do we start? We, I might talk for three hours on that one question alone. So how, how would you define God or the, the, the source is what six would say? And I, well, we, we would, we would uh, first of all, acknowledge God as our creator and the creator of everything. And so uh, uh, from our perspective, uh, we worship God as, uh, as not only our creator, but our educator. And as our educator, he has sent manifestations to uh, provide us with uh, continuous revelation over many ages. And so this is where we recognize the oneness of religion as being a manifestation of that oneness of, of God. We uh, respect God as uh, a loving being, uh, but also a being that has uh, given us uh, instructions and laws that we we need to follow. And so uh, similar to other faiths, we have uh, principles, uh, laws, teachings that we consider to be the foundation of our faith, uh, and it guides the way that we lead our daily lives. So in I know that within Christian tradition specifically, and I would say even more Protestant than Catholic, although I don't want to speak for Catholics, there is a very much a personal relationship with that deity. If you talk to Jews, not so much, at least according to Pam's perspective, although some Jews would probably maybe even argue with that. Is is there a, a personal relationship with this deity? Is it, you, you said this this being is a loving being, is it? Yes. Yeah. Yeah, very, very much. In fact, we consider prayer to be a conversation with God. And so uh, one of the laws of the Baha'i faith is daily prayer. And so on a daily basis, we commune with God through the process of prayer and meditation. And uh, this can be done collectively. Uh, Baha'is gather together in homes and neighborhoods and invite the neighbors, too, because uh, we're very inclusive in our, in our uh, practice. And uh, consider these to be opportunities to spiritualize the neighborhood by kind of reflecting on our uh, spiritual reality and reflecting on our relationship uh, with God. Do you speak in, in God in terms of mother, father, Spirit are any any kind of metaphors or, or analogies that are, that are dear to the heart of Baha'i people, or does it differ based on the culture? Well, I would say it differs based on the culture because since the Baha'i faith is a world religion, 
uh, how individuals may refer to God or even think about God uh, may vary, uh, partly influenced by their cultural background and their upbringing. In, in most Baha'i prayers, you either are addressing God uh, or my Lord is another way. Uh, uh, Heavenly Father is not a, a common usage, I wouldn't say, and in the, in the, in the Baha'i prayers, but at the end of almost every Baha'i prayer are various kinds of salutations, uh, speaking of the, uh, the uh, qualities of God, such as the ever-forgiving, the all-knowing, the all-wise, different, uh, many, many different uh, salutations like that. So then, which leads me to, so you, you said all-knowing, so the omniscience of God. That has always been a huge debate within Christian circles, too. So if God is all-knowing and then could... Uh, and we're going to get into some theodicy questions here. I'm going to rabbit trail, rabbit hole this, if that's okay. Uh, yeah. is, is, is this God, the all-knowing God, in the sense that knows what specifically is going to happen within every instance in the future? Or perhaps uh, the God that could, could figure out what could happen based on probabilities? And I know that's where you have dif- differences even within the Christian tradition there. Yeah, we, 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 we believe that God is all-knowing, in, I think in the absolute sense. Uh, but but the the kind of the paradox and maybe something that's hard for us to understand as humans is that in the context of his all knowing uh, capability, we have been given by him the freedom of choice, and so so if if it, it, it's difficult for people to kind of get their mind around the fact that on one hand God can absolutely know what is happening in the future, and yet we absolutely have the ability to exercise our our free choice. And so we see both of those as compatible in the context of an all-knowing, all-knowing God. So would God be limiting, limiting God's power in that sense of, so let's say, uh, I'm going to give, I'm God, I'm going to give Janelle uh, the free choice and the ability, even though I, I know what she's going to do, but I'm going to limit my power if she's going to make a really bad choice. I mean, because she's, she's going to have to make it on her own. And, and, no, we, we it, don't view that as a limitation of God's power. I mean, okay. that's, that's part of the imperfection of man is the perfection of his creation. And uh, as a matter of fact, we, we, see, we see that uh, freedom of choice as a very unique quality that we have in this world alone. So if we think about the afterlife, for instance, um, we believe that this world is a preparation for our future lives that we will live after we pass from this world. And that the one of the unique characteristics of this world is the ability to exercise freedom of choice. So in the, the analogy that sometimes is used, the womb is a preparation for this world. And then this world becomes a preparation for the coming worlds that we'll, our soul will uh, advance to after we leave this world. The unique character of this world is the fact that this is the one world where we're able to exercise that freedom of choice. In in future worlds, our development will not stop, but it will be at the mercy of God and the direction of God as opposed to the exercise of choice here in this world. So then to skip ahead to that next world, if, if you will, will there be like a, a presence within that realm of, of God and humanity? They're almost like we're looking at each other right now. Is that... Well, well first of all, we believe that the, the teachings of the Baha'i faith tell us that the, the next world or the next worlds are not physical worlds. And so analogies sure. may apply. We could say it'll be like we're sitting around a table because we're... We're told that uh, our soul will recognize other souls that we knew before, that it'll be a reunion 
of, of souls. And so from that standpoint, uh, there will be a continued association. We're also told that souls that pass on from this world uh, are closer to us than our life's vein. That's a quote from the Baha'i writings, meaning uh, that the separation that we're experiencing here in this world is literally an illusion based on our limited ability to perceive based on the physical world that we're living in, which is removed uh, at least in part, as we move on to the the, the future worlds of, of God. So we say that we can pray for the advancement of souls who have passed before us, and those souls pray for the advancement of our own soul as we progress through this world in preparation for future worlds. So there's this mystical connection that exists between the worlds that we consider to be very dynamic and, and very positive. So the next world then is also, you're progressing in that world also? It's not yes. a perfection state? It's not a perfection state. It is, uh, we're told, a, a much more beautiful place than this world. So it is advancing towards perfection. Uh, but we're continue, We're told that our souls continue to advance. So we haven't moved from this world to a state of perfection that is somehow static or something like that. Yeah. Is there a temporal limit to the next world? Is it, and then you go on to a, a next thing. Uh, my, my understanding is that time takes on a different meaning or maybe no meaning in the next world. So the concept of a temporal limit really isn't applied to the, to the next world or future worlds that we have. This is, that is a, a material concept that applies in this world and is useful for us to understand in this world, but is, is not something that is a constraint in the future worlds. That always takes me back to Tink Tinker's whole presentation on spatial versus temporal, you know, and I, which still blows my mind when I try to get my Western mind wrapped around <laughs> that, that, you know, the, mm -hmm. that what's important is the, is the spatial. Huh. Any other questions about the divine before we, we move on? There's, there's, so, there's so many other follow-up questions, of course. <laughs> so, yeah. well, yeah. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Um, so do, does everybody advance to this next world, or can you choose badly and not end up in that place? Well, uh, the answer is yes, everybody advances to the next world in our understanding, and... <laughs> And and uh, but but there the the caveat is that uh, we advance in part based on the choices that we do make here, the life that we live here, because that's a preparation for the next world. And we're told that the purpose of humankind is to achieve nearness to God. So uh, the the more that we align our lives with the teachings of God in this world, the closer we'll be to God in the next world. And that doesn't mean that that's a static state that can't be changed or evolve over time, but that's basically what happens uh, next. Now, the other thing that we understand from our writings is that is that even God does not decide the fate of a soul until the time of passing. And so it's not as if we're kind of notching up brownie points along the way and we're doing pretty well, and so we're, we can kind of coast in. And in fact, there are writings that talk about how someone who has lived a, a wonderful life has at the last moment, you know, chosen a different path and that's had an impact on, on his or her future. And likewise, someone who has... Uh, made very poor decisions along the way may transform and move in a different direction towards the end. And so we're told that we can never judge the uh, the future or the uh, the spiritual destiny of another soul, including our own. That's God's uh, role. But even God does not make that assessment until the time of passing. When we were when you spoke the other night, we, someone asked you about sin and where that fits in, and you had mentioned about free choice. 
Um, and I am curious, it's another theodicy question. Um, <laughs> if, because the ideals of Baha'i uh, Baha mm -hmm. uh, faith are so, I mean, they're lofty ideals. Mm -hmm. um, how, do you, how do you deal with the, the muck and the mess that we find ourselves in theologically? Mm -hmm. Well, for one thing, we don't judge the muck and the mess that, that we find ourselves in because each person is on a path of their own. Well, we, well, I mean, there's different levels of assessing sort of the world that we live in. Uh, one is kind of the social context. Another is the individual behavior. Um, and, and so uh, Baha'is basically are setting about the uh, objective of creating the alternative to uh, the muck and the mess, as you put it. Uh, and that's not to say there aren't wonderful elements in the world, uh, too, that, that, that exist. Uh, but as the world declines, and we see many evidences of the decline in trust in institutions and others, uh, uh, we are not uh, in any way trying to attempt to help with the decline of that because we think it's doing very well on its own. Uh, we feel a much more important contribution to society is to create the alternative. They will become increasingly attractive. And, and, uh, and it's not to say that we know what the alternative is in detail, but we have the principles, we believe, the lofty principles that we're trying to learn how to implement. And so Baha'is see themselves very much in a learning mode. Uh, we're learning how to build these alternative models. And some are more effective and some are less effective, but we learn from that process and advance the opportunity for humankind to have a positive alternative as they see others declining right before their eyes. But when you say lofty ideals, Baha'is don't claim to be lofty individuals. We, one, as it was put, you know, Baha'is have not gotten anywhere, they've just agreed to go. And so we don't view ourselves as better than others. Uh, we don't hold ourselves up as, as somehow uh, paragons of perfection. Uh, but we do believe that the principles and teachings of the Baha'i faith offer the opportunity to humankind to advance to the next stage of our, of our collective uh, evolution. Those would be like the laws you talked about briefly and practices. Mm -hmm. the, so lots of, you know, lots of religions, I, I was a Buddhist for a long time, mm -hmm. so a lot uh -huh. of what you do is practice. Practice, practice, practice. Uh -huh. what, what's, the, what's the thing you do as a Baha'i to, as not a lofty person, stay true to the lofty ideals? Uh, well, um, there are probably many answers to that. Uh, one of the teachings of Baha'u'llah is that we should bring ourselves to account each day. And so, uh, you know, we, we do good things and we do things that we regret on a daily basis. And if we don't take the time to reflect on that, then we really lose the opportunity for continuous improvement. And so to continuously kind of assess how we're doing, uh, and, and it's not my job to continuously assess how you're doing, uh, but it is my job to continuously assess how I'm doing. And, and, and I can reflect on the teachings, I can reflect on what I did that helped promote those teachings or advance those Teachings, and by the way, not in a, not in a way of uh, proselytizing, but to put those teachings into life, into practice in my uh, daily life. And if I can make that a little bit better each day or, or most days or make that as my objective, then collectively that orientation begins to advance the entire society in a positive direction. Is that, is that, that kind makes, of helpful? Yeah, that seems, yeah that's very uh -huh. helpful. Yeah. yeah. Personally... Cannot speak for the rest of you around the table here. 
I would say that if I were not raised Christian in a specific context, and I just came across all these world religions, and then Baha'i was just placed right in front of me, I would say mm-hmm. this is the most attractive of all the world religions. I'm mm-hmm. not, I, I really, not, I, I can't, I can't say. Uh, I think so. I haven't really attracted to the Buddhist tradition in some ways, but I like the I like the idea of still holding on to a deity, and that's probably a bit of a bias just because I was raised with with uh, this idea of God my whole life. So, you talked about these these three pillars, mm-hmm. and there's this oneness with God. Okay, there's this oneness with humanity, and then there's this oneness with religion. I, yep. I really want to let's talk about religion because. I think religion's just, it's fascinating. And I think it's fascinating specifically when it comes to this specific tradition mm-hmm. as it's this almost like this progressive cycle, these revelations. So here's another quote here from the Baha'i writings in, that you gave us. And it says that divine revelation is a continuous and progressive process, that all the great religions of the world are divine in origin, that their basic principles are in complete harmony, that their aims and purposes are one and the same that their teachings are but facets of one truth and that their missions represent successive stages in the spiritual evolution of human society. So that sounds incredibly fascinating. As, as anybody who studied any kind of history or religion, you know, the anthropology of religion, and you start looking at this trajectory. So one religion, in a way, either builds off another or that religion fits a, a specific context with that people in that region in that, in that time. Um, and we, we touched on this a little bit, but so um, d- due to the fact that you have these these lofty ideals in the Baha'i faith today that are truly amazing, I mean, and who doesn't want world peace? Who you know who doesn't want harmony with science and religion and and uh, you know the the oneness of humanity? I would say Amen. Even if you're agnostic atheist, you would say Amen to all that. You know, you just might not want to have to have to deal with God, but still, like the, the rest of that's really good. Um, how, what does it what does it look like? outside of learning religious traditions to promote unity and yet particular diversity and knowing that that is going to, so it's, it's almost like this, this concept of in the reality of pluralism that we have today, how do you, how do you hold that posture toward other religions by not feeling like you are better than them, that they're outdated? Because I mean, even in, I would, I would ask that question of any religion, Christians, Jews, uh, Muslims. I mean, it's, because in a way, we're, we all feel like we have we have the particular religion according to what's been revealed to us. So, so how, I know that's a very loaded question again, but I'm, tr- I'm trying to really figure. I'm really trying to figure out this question and how to get it down to like a concrete. What you know, but uh, you, can, you can just start riffing off off of whatever I just said there. Okay. Well, well, first of all, uh, Baha'u'llah, the founder of the Baha'i Faith, specifically said, "Consort with people of all religions." So. We start with this instruction from Baha'u'llah that we should be interacting with uh, people from all religions. Uh, uh, Baha'is are encouraged to marry outside of the Baha'i faith and to other, other religions, so we're not uh, limited to... Uh, to uh, uh, Do you know any uh, other religion marriage? that encourages that outside of agnostics and atheists? Uh, <laughs> I, I, I don't know of any other religion that encourages that, um, uh, but I do know that sometimes even... Uh, two people who are not Baha'is of different religions who are having trouble finding out how to get married, they'll come to the Baha'is, and as long as they meet the requirements of Baha'i marriage, the Baha'is are happy to uh, sanction that marriage uh, as well. in, and uh, so, so you, you know, you you have this tradition of inclusiveness that that kind of sets the scene. 
and so, you know, if, if, if you're a husband and wife coming from two different faiths, let's say the Baha'i faith and some other faith, how, how could you possibly have the attitude that my faith is better than your faith? I mean, that's, that's a judgment again. Now, uh, the, the uh, Baha'i faith understands the unity of religions, though, as not being all the same. And so, so uh, we, we understand that, that uh, each religion brings with it uh, spiritual teachings, which are common across all faiths. The analogies may be different, the details may be different, but the, the concept of prayer is a universal concept, the concept of the existence of a god, the concept of a life after death. These are, these are eternal teachings that are shared among all of the major faiths. Uh, the teachings that vary are the social teachings. And, and so when we find teachings that are different, we don't understand those to be better or worse. We simply understand them to be age appropriate, as you pointed out, uh, or appropriate for the region in which the faith was uh, revealed. And so in the context of the Baha'i faith, we believe this is the first faith that has been revealed for all the peoples of the world. Uh, and, and that's not because it's better than the other faiths, but it's because this is the time when it's possible to speak in those terms. At the time that Jesus Christ uh, revealed his faith, he knew absolutely as much as Baha'u'llah knew, but he was addressing people who were living in the context of 2,000 years ago. Travel was not easy. Communication, long-distance communication did not exist. And so people operated within the context of their uh, community. And so uh, love thy neighbor was the, the right level of unity to be promoting at the time. By the time, uh, and, and, and in fact, uh, uh, when Muhammad came, he promoted the concept of the unity of, of a nation state and, and really uh, built those teachings into the Quran. And now Baha'u'llah has come and extended that uh, further to uh, a focus on uh, world unity. So, so someone who is focused on, uh, uh, you know, uh, love thy neighbor is not outdated. Uh, uh, but there is an opportunity now to build on that further. And so Baha'is understand that when a new teacher comes along, he doesn't uh, say, well, this was wrong, and so now I'm going to reveal this. He's actually saying this was successful, and so it's now set the scene for the next stage in the development of human humankind. So many, many of my uh, Baha'i friends who were Christians before they became Baha'is say they've gained a, a stronger appreciation for Jesus Christ and the role of Christianity from the Baha'i perspective than they had as Christians, because they now see how it really contributed to this development of humankind that now makes it possible for us to talk about world peace. And by the way, Baha'is don't just believe world peace is possible, we believe it's inevitable. Yeah. So just like there are uh, Jubus, which are Jewish Buddhist, it's a, that's a term. It's it's a, it's a, Are there any Christian Baha'is? Like you said, there there were people who were Christian who became Baha'is. Can you be a Christo Baha'i? Is that a thing? Or a or a Buddhist Baha'i? Or although Buddhists don't believe in God, but uh, 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 how about a Sufi? Let's do that. Sufi Baha'i, or you know. Well, I mean, this is, again, part of a personal journey that individuals are taking. So there may be individuals who identify with 
two faiths of the time. Uh, the, the formal understanding of the Baha'i faith is that as we accept the teachings and the laws of Baha'u'llah, we're accepting him as the manifestation of God for this day. So as such, we respect all of these other manifestations, but we don't follow those teachings because those teachings were appropriate for, for an, another time. And so, so uh, in general, you'll meet Baha'is who are uh, followers of Baha'u'llah uh, as the latest of these manifestations from this time. And we believe that the, the purpose of humankind in every age is to recognize the man manifestation of that time, of their time. And so for Baha'is, it's very easy to, to, on one hand, accept Baha'u'llah as the manifestation to follow and respect the manifestations have, who have contributed to where we are today. Yeah, okay. How would you discern if the next uh, person bringing truth what were to happen in, say, your lifetime? Do, do they have a way of measuring that? Because... Well, the world is changing so quickly right now. Yeah. It, is it possible that, and you see yourselves as part of a growing, um, you know, one thing building on another. So is it possible that another person could come? Uh, it is promised that another person will come. Uh, but the time frame is not within my lifetime unless something really amazing happens <laughs> to extend my lifetime. Uh, because uh, Baha'u'llah himself said that we, in, in approximately a thousand years, in about a thousand years, the next manifestation would come. And so Baha'is view these teachings as the uh, appropriate teachings to help guide the world's development over that time frame. So, so we are told that you know we are passing through a number of stages now, and and uh, right now we are you know uh, working towards the establishment of what we call the the lesser peace, and which is the absence of war. Uh, but the vision of of the Baha'i faith is that over the next uh, time frame, perhaps even centuries, maybe uh, several hundred years. Uh, we'll be working towards the establishment of what we refer to as the golden age or the most great peace, which is really characterized by the true recognition of the oneness of humankind, true collaboration and love for our fellow people. My dad used to use the analogy that the lesser peace, you know, the absence of war, which for many people is really the epitome of kind of aspiration of humankind, is really nothing more than a, a piece of chained dogs. You know, uh, the absence of war implies that you know, if, if we could get at each other, we would, but we're now afraid to have war, so we have agreed not to hit each other anymore. And, and so, uh, you know, that's a great start. That's much better than where we have been. Uh, and, and that's part of the process that leads us to the most great peace. But we see this as a several centuries uh, project to really uh, build this concept of, of true global peace. Yeah, the, the idea that, you know, peace on earth, it's such a watered-down version when we think about warfare like yeah that's great but you know what about restoration healing wholeness forgiveness reconciliation like you were talking about like true oneness that's what this this uh, religion this faith these manifestations mm -hmm. are are speaking to um mm -hmm. again consciousness change a, a, amen right <laughs> a transformation really in the way we look at each other yeah mm -hmm. what happens if in this golden age is there another age after that cosmologically is there like uh -huh. where where does this utopia end well, uh, we don't know. I mean, that's what the next manifestation will help us learn when it's time for... Right, right now, I, I think one of the reasons that each manifestation doesn't kind of give the whole story is that would distract us. 
you know, and and, and so, uh, so and, and so we'd be saying, oh, let's let's go ahead and work for, uh, you know, uh, uh, planetary peace or you know whatever whatever the next level is. But uh, for for humankind, we we uh, are focused on building this uh, world peace, uh, you know, at, at this level, and and that's plenty for us to work on now. Most people are doubtful that it's even possible, and so we have plenty on our plates right now to work on that. And then, you know, uh, many amazing new things will be possible as we move forward in the same way that this is the amazing dream that every religion has prophesized in the past and people of all ages have looked forward to. So this in itself is quite an amazing culmination. And, and we do believe that this is setting the scene. Uh, this transformation to world peace sets the scene for the human evolution over centuries and millennium to come. Uh, so this is 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 a very very significant uh, turning point in the history of the world, where we achieve what the Baha'i writings refer to as the maturation of humanity. That we've moved through ages of kind of childhood and adolescence, and those are turbulent periods uh, characterized by conflict. Uh, but now we are to the point where we are capable of resolving conflict not through violence but through consultation. And, and that mechanism of consultation may evolve over time, but the capacity to engage in nonviolent conflict resolution sets the stage for all kinds of advancements well beyond the time frame of the Baha'i faith, the, the thousand-year period that we're talking about. Can you all imagine sitting down watching The Return of the Jedi before A New Hope? That would re that would really mess things up as a Star Wars fan, wouldn't it? Like you got to yeah, but don't uh, you, people usually can't help but think about those things, right? And describe I know, I know. the utopia of the future. Yeah, it's very tempting, uh, yeah. uh, and you know, uh, it 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 is uh, though you know also quite daunting to think about the what what the leaders of the Baha'i faith, the Universal House of Justice, has referred to as the Herculean task. Of, of moving uh, humanity towards world peace. And so, you know, if, if we keep our eyes on the current task, that's the way that we can make the greatest contribution towards the advancement of humankind. You have a lot of people that go into politics or work for the UN mm -hmm. or do, work, do kind of, I guess, global jobs mm -hmm. that would have that peaceful influence. Uh, yeah. do, you, do you see that or is that? Well, it, 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 there are two parts to that and it's no and yes. Okay. Uh, Baha'is do not go into any partisan politics. And so we will never run for a office, uh, you know, as a Democrat or a Republican. We vote in, in elections. We will yeah. vote, but we don't vote the party ticket. We look at the qualifications of the individual. That's what we're advised to do. And the Baha'i electoral system itself is a system without electioneering or campaigning. It's simply individuals voting for the individual Baha'is, voting for the nine most qualified people who become members of a local spiritual assembly in a town or members of a national spiritual assembly in a country or members of the Universal House of Justice at the, at the global level. So we, we believe that this electoral system actually can offer a model for a nonpartisan way of, of selecting individuals. Uh, the, the current system demonstrates the potential for disunity uh, that oftentimes occur, occurs out of this. And so we view partisan politics as a disunifying force in society that must evolve into a more unifying process. Now, having said that, 
Uh, we do not remove ourselves from social and economic activ uh, development activity or other kinds of social service. There's many ways to be of service other than right. being active yeah. in politics. And so, as I say, we do vote uh, and we express our voice through uh, the secret ballot that we're offered in, in these elections. Uh, but we also, you'll find that Baha'is are uh, uh, participants in the United Nations activity for many years. My dad was the chief technical advisor for education for the United Nations in China, actually. And the United the the Baha'i Faith is actually an NGO member of the United Nations, a non-governmental organization. So we have an office in New York. Uh, the Baha'i International Community issues regular statements on social issues. In fact, the most recent uh, I think it's the most recent uh, statement was issued for uh, the World Women's Day last week. Yeah. And it's a wonderful statement. Uh, if we have time, we could pull out and have a look at a little bit of it. But, but otherwise, it's available on the Baha'i International Community site, BIC, www.bic.org. Anybody can go and pick up these statements on uh, issues like climate change or uh, uh, eradication of poverty in the world. Uh, the Baha'is were very active in uh, helping with the development of the sustainable development goals that have been promulgated by the United Nations. Uh, and I don't mean to take too much credit because we are one of many, many organizations that were participants, but we were active participants and issued our own statement commenting on those goals after they were uh, released. So we're very strong advocates of the United Nations uh, and their efforts to promote uh, world collaboration. Uh, in 1995, I think it was on the occasion of the 50th anniversary of the United Nations, the Baha'is issued a document called The Turning Point uh, that actually outlined recommendations for improving the functioning of the United Nations based on some of the principles of the Baha'i faith that we thought might contribute in a positive way. Yeah. Do, when Baha'i people are doing those things, how do, how do they... Is there a central, is there a, a unified sort of decision-making group? I mean, what mm -hmm. you described was no clergy and that you have these um, elections. And mm -hmm. then I'm thinking, you know, in, in a lot of churches, there's sort of a church party line. And if these individual mm -hmm. people, I assume, would have to follow that line. When you, when you say a party line, I'm well, not sure. I, I, uh, I, that's a political reference, yeah. which I know you guys don't do. But <laughs> um, I guess I mean... Uh, you know, if the Pope says mm -hmm. this is the thing, yep, that's the thing. And and uh, Baha'is uh, do have an administrative order that we're obedient to. So from that standpoint, maybe there's some similarity to what you're talking about. Uh, it uh, the, the this administrative order was actually established by Baha'u'llah, uh, outlined in his writings, and uh, and it begins at the local level with a local spiritual assembly. Uh, which is a body of nine individuals who are the governing body for the Baha'is in that town. And uh, so those individuals are elected from the entire adult membership of the, of the uh, locality, the Baha'i membership. Uh, all Baha'is participate, all adult Baha'is participate in that election and cast their ballots for nine individuals. The individuals, and so through no electioneering or campaigning, uh, nine individuals are elected, and so they've not expressed any desire to be on this on this body. 
Uh, and in fact, if they did, that would kind of disqualify them because one of the qualities that Baha'is look for in their elected uh, individuals is humility. And uh, so humility, uh, knowledge, spirit of service, these kinds of things. And so someone who would be holding up a placard saying, vote for me, would be demonstrating their uh, lack of preparation for this, for this role. And, and uh, so, so that occurs at the local level. And, and so Baha'is must be 100% obedient to that local uh, entity. But the, the role of that entity is coordination. It is not to issue out orders and uh, direct people's lives. And so it's really not on a day-to-day -day basis. There is no issue of obedience. But th that is the local uh, governing body of the Baha'is. Now, at the national level, there is a comparable body that is elected, and those are actually elected by delegates. By then, you have too many people to do. So, uh, 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 delegates from electoral units from throughout the country who are elected, again, by with no electioneering, the same exact process uh, at the unit level, then travel to uh, the uh, Baha'i headquarters in Wilmette, Illinois, near Chicago, where the Baha'i House of Worship is, uh, and once a year cast their votes for the National Spiritual Assembly members. And that body is basically the same at the national level. And then we have uh, the Universal House of Justice residing in Haifa, Israel. That's the world headquarters of the Baha'i Faith, uh, which issues uh, you know, guidance and, uh, and uh, helps to govern the the uh, uh, the Baha'i world. So we're, uh, we're told by Baha'u'llah that the Universal House of Justice is an infallible organization. So we, as Baha'is, we view anything coming from the Universal House of Justice as basically God's word and instruction to humankind, uh, you know, in, in, in real time. And and so so yeah and so so with with that uh, perspective then there's an interesting you were talking about you know what happens as the world changes and everything and 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 the universal house of justice is the mechanism for providing supplementary legislation if you will or supplementary guidance that is not explicitly contained in the writings of Baha'u'llah or his son Abdul Baha or his great grandson. Uh, Shelgi Effendi, we we the Universal House of Justice is is authorized to uh, to supplement those writings, not to change. So so there is no changing of the writings that have been provided by Baha'u'llah. But if there was an issue that came up that was not covered in the writings, Universal House of Justice is authorized to provide that supplementary guidance. Yeah, that reminds me quite a bit of uh, we talked about Judaism not too long ago with Pam Eisenbaum and. There is the letter of the law, the Torah, and there's the spirit of the law. And we think, I wish Christians would really understand that because Jesus lived in that tradition as well. Mm -hmm. How uh, the letters don't change, but the spirit of the law based on the context of the age does change, mm -hmm. which is why Judaism has been able to evolve. So it sounds like what you're saying, it's uh, it, it's very similar, obviously, different different language, different culture, different religion, uh, but that inner house of ju international house of justice... Yeah, universal house of justice. Yeah, uh -huh. uh, ...does act as, as that spirit of the law today, but the letter still remains the same. Yeah. yeah. Well, I but I would say it's more than the spirit of the law because what they would issue as would would be absolutely binding guidance if they if they uh, issued something like that too. So it'd be the spirit and the letter of the law kind of embodied in the universal house of justice. Are their statements equal to Bahá'u'lláh? Baha sorry, Bahá'u'lláh. Bahá'u'lláh's uh -huh. writings, or uh -huh. is it a little bit lower? 
Uh, well, they are all binding. So, okay. but 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 uh, the House of Justice would never ever position their writings as being equal to okay. Baha'u'llah, and so there would be a clear understanding uh, that that Baha'u'llah's writings. If you read Abdu Baha's writings, the son of Baha'u'llah, who he designated as his successor. Uh, and the and the sole interpreter of the writings. We I I mentioned at our gathering last week that that uh, no individual Baha'i is authorized to interpret the writings for another Baha'i. That's part of our independent investigation of truth. Uh, but when Baha'u'llah passed away, in his uh, will, he designated Abdu Baha as the sole interpreter of the writings. And so we turned to Abdu Baha's interpretation of the writings and his guidance as being absolutely as authoritative as Baha'u'llah. And Shoghi Effendi, the great grandson of, of uh, Baha'u'llah, who was designated by Abdu Baha as his successor, the guardian, known as the guardian of the Baha'i faith, we look to his writings as authoritative too, because of the this line of uh, designation, if you will, uh, from Baha'u'llah to Abdu Baha to Shoghi Effendi. But Baha'u'llah himself said that when uh, the the guardians were no longer, the the Baha'is of the world would elect the Universal House of Justice, who would be this unerring uh, source of guidance. So, unlike any religion in the past, this is a very unique characteristic of the Baha'i faith: is that we have this center of guidance to turn to that has been designated by the founder. Uh, himself. So we believe that we are doing this in obedience to the founders. We turn to the guidance of the Universal House of Justice. And this is also then becomes the center of the covenant, if you will, uh, for the Baha'i faith. Uh, the fact that this covenant uh, extends through Abdu'l-Baha, through Shoghi Effendi, and, and now obedience to the Universal House of Justice is obedience to the covenant that God has revealed through the Baha'i faith. And so unlike past fa faiths, there is built into the Baha'i faith the assurance that it won't splinter into parts because this universal house of justice is designated by Baha'u'llah himself as the sole source of guidance uh, at this time. And what language are your original writings in and uh, who does translation that, that that's a, a amazing uh question actually uh the uh the 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 original writings of baha'u'llah are both in persian and arabic uh and and the, his process of revelation oftentimes was sometimes in his own handwriting uh, some of the tablets and scriptures of the Baha'i faith are in his own handwriting, but they're, they're so voluminous that uh, oftentimes he would reveal them to what was known as an amanuensis or a secretary who would take, I mean, this flow of revelation would just be coming, you know, pouring forth, and this guy would be just working very, very hard to keep up with it all. And and uh, and then uh, the, the next process would be for him to come back with his, uh, with his, you know, longhand notes, he would write it up into a final script, and then Baha'u'llah would reveal it again. Uh, and, and this guy would go through, and it's not just one person over the time, but, but it w would go through and, and uh, make any uh, corrections or notations. So this, was, so this was perfect revelation coming out of the mouth of Baha'u'llah twice, basically. And then Baha'u'llah would review it and then put his stamp of of uh, uh, authenticity 
onto it. So uh, again, unique in, in the context of this religion, you have this process of revelation that is noted down hundreds and uh, of, of not only tablets, but books of, of writings that have been verified by the manifestation himself. And and uh, uh, not the same process, but a similar process of verification for Abdu'l-Bahá's writings, which I believe were mostly in uh, uh, Persian. I don't know if they, they were in Arabic as well. I'm, I'm not sure about that. And Shoghi, many of Shoghi Effendi's writings uh, were in English, actually. He attended Oxford as a young man and uh, really mastered the English language. And so the early translations of Baha'u'llah's and Abdu'l-Bahá's writings were actually conducted by uh, Shoghi Effendi. Now, there are many, many writings that have not yet been translated. And so under the auspices of the Universal House of Justice, there is actually a research department that is... Uh, uh, that is tasked with the study and, inter and and translation of these writings. And that in itself is quite an amazing process oh, yeah. that has been described because it is intended to absolutely maintain the very authentic feel of the original uh, writings, uh, but of course be accessible in many languages throughout the world. So, so uh, uh, on a on a fairly methodical, not fairly on a very methodical basis, yeah. uh, these writings are slowly being re released in translations to the world, and then from there they can be translated from usually translated into English. They can be translated into many other languages. That that becomes the kind of the the source uh, document that can then be used to translate into many other languages around the world. So it's a complex process yeah, it is. when you're a global faith. Yep. Well, it's interesting that you talked about revelation because that, that piece, a lot of the things you've said about uh, Baha'i, the piece about revelation or the sort of mystical, there's like a mm -hmm. mystery piece that I haven't heard. Mm -hmm. and, and it seems like there's lots of sort of principles and um, and, and mm -hmm. kind of administrative kind of things, it sounds mm -hmm. like, the you know, Universal House of Justice. Mm -hmm. um, is that part part of it? Is, could there be a Baha'i mystic? Could there be a Baha'i mystic? Well, there can be, uh, you know, very learned Baha'is who can, you know, write books about the... Uh, the Baha'i writings and things, but remember that that prohibition of interpreting the writings uh, for someone else extends to all Baha'is. And so uh, the, the sense of a Baha'i mystic that had a special station would not occur in the Baha'i faith. Uh, the, the fact that you might have someone who's very learned, has studied the writings, has some very interesting observations about those writings, uh, it would be fine for that person to share those with, with others, but in the spirit of sharing. And mm -hmm. but that individual would not be elevated uh, to a different level. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Would they, and they would not be allowed to publish that. They I can assume. they can publish that. They can they mean they, there are Baha'i publishing trusts throughout the okay. world, and so you'll find many books written about the the writings, uh, the history of the Kitabi Gan, the, the Book of Certitude, which is one of the central books. There may be a book you know that that talks about the history of how that was written or background on that, or even a study guide to help people go through with questions that would uh, help people think through some of the issues that are raised uh, in those uh, books. So there, there is an active encouragement of people to, to uh, uh, publish uh, through these Baha'i publishing trusts, you know, their their experiences as Baha'is, uh, uh, the you know there are compilations of Baha'i writings on various topics, uh, whether it would be uh, economics or uh, uh, 
um, the equality of uh, women and men, uh, you know, many, many, these uh, agreement of science and religion, all of these are very weighty topics. Uh, and, you know, you have uh, elements of the Baha'i faith that address each of these that are kind of distributed throughout the writings. And so one individual or, or one entity may choose to compile, you know, bring all those together so that they're a very convenient compilation for people to study. Right now I'm reading a very interesting small book uh, on uh, all of the Baha'i writings on the world language, on the universal auxiliary language. And so that seems like a very simple concept, but actually as you begin to look at the collection of writings that are contained in various places throughout the Baha'i uh, writings, it actually has a huge depth and implication for a peaceful world. Is that a thing like the universal language that Baha'is work on inventing, or is that a thing that will be received? Well, it, it is actually uh, uh, will be identified through a process that Baha'u'llah identified. Uh, he said that, first of all, the con just for a moment, the concept of the universal auxiliary language is that in addition to my mother tongue, I would learn one additional language that everybody in the world is learning. So your mother tongue might be Mandarin, uh, and you would learn that and, and the universal language. And your language might be French, and you would learn that. And so there's a very deep respect for the cultural uh, you know, contents of those languages and the, you know, the thinking processes that are contained in those languages. Uh, and so we all continue to learn our, our mother tongue, whatever that is. But in order to operate effectively in a global society, we need to be able to communicate with each other. We could do that by learning about 4,000 languages, uh, but that would not be very practical. And so uh, the concept of one additional language that everybody would learn is, is a very practical way to do that. Now, Baha'u'llah said that there are two routes to selecting that language. The, the desirable route would be for the kings and rulers to come together and collectively decide what that language is. And, and specifically, it says it could be an existing language or a new language. So it could be an invented language like Esperanto. Baha'is were quite excited about Esperanto, and some Baha'is learned Esperanto, hoping that that would become the world language. So far, that process of selection, though, hasn't taken, taken place. Uh, Baha'u'llah did say, though, that if the kings and rulers, after some undesignated time, but after a reasonable time, do not do that themselves, then the Universal House of Justice is authorized to identify that language. And they would do that with the entire world in, in mind. And, and so uh, that would be the backup plan, uh, because the Universal House of Justice certainly is capable of, of uh, making that decision in an informed way if, if uh, need be. 